I'd like to urge you all to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Daniel, chapter 3, for the reading of God's Word, and then summarily the preaching of God's Word this morning. In a few moments, we'll be reading from Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. And just prior to the reading of God's Word, let me set the table just a little bit for the meal of God's Word. So good to be with you this morning and to have this this freedom that we have to gather. Um, It's not a guaranteed freedom across time in human history now, is it? We know very well that we have brothers and sisters all over the world today that do not have the freedom that we have to gather and worship. Now, I think it might be helpful to really get in touch with that this morning. So I'm going to read to you an excerpt from World News Group from the onset. And the title of this lead from January 20 is Afghanistan Tops List of Worst Persecutors. And here's just a few, from the interview, here's a few salient points. Mary Reichert is the host, and she notes over 300 million Christians live in countries and regions where they suffer religious persecution. 300 million Christians. So by contrast, or comparison rather, America has over 300 million citizens. So if you take the vast majority of Americans and scatter them out throughout the world, that's how many people would be living under religious persecution right now in the world, just by comparison. Uh, and probably more, but well over 300 million Christians. Uh, she also notes as a host, actually, Myrna Brown does, of The World and Everything in It, World News Group. She hosts in this interview with David Curry that, they're going to, that they interview from Open Doors USA. They, after the 300 million quote, they say, one out of every eight believers worldwide live in a place where they cannot safely declare and practice their faith in public. So if you count off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, not safe. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, not safe. And if you're like me, I'm, I need those kinds of visuals to kind of get my mind around the prolificness of persecution of believers in the world. Um, each year, Open Doors USA publishes its world watch list, shining a light on the 50 places around the world where it costs the most to be a Christian. And so that was the, the genesis of this, or the impetus rather, for this interview that they did this past week, or at least that they aired this past week. Open Doors published its 2022 watch list and he had some points that he made throughout. He said North Korea had been number one for almost two decades, and North Korea hadn't gotten better, but he testified that Afghanistan had gotten worse, and so they had moved into number one. He also said that China is number 17 on their list this year. It continues to move up the list, but that actually sort of belies the major issue there. It is the number one model of centralized control being used against religious minorities. They have all this technology, facial recognition, They monitor the internet, they control the internet, they use artificial intelligence to watch whether you're attending church, and they will punish you by diminishing your social score so that you're too, so that if you're too observant to the Christian faith, you can't fly, you can't travel, you can lose your job, your kids aren't going to be able to go to school of their choice. So China has this roadmap, and Curry calls it the high-tech noose. He calls it a high-tech noose. He says it continues to get tighter and tighter, tighter and tighter. So, for example, we estimate that 80% of the churches that were meeting in commercial buildings in China now are not. They're fractured into smaller groups because they're trying to shut down these churches, and then they go online, but they're monitored online, and those groups are shut down if they reach more than a few dozen. So China continues to tighten the noose around Christians. Finally, Curry says this. I think it really helps set the table for the, the theme of today's text. He says, we've seen one jump in the negative sense in Cuba, which is back on the list. The government's trying to neuter the church there. They said there's a lot of Christians in Cuba. It's number 37 on our list. That would be of interest to people because we have some freedoms there in Cuba that have been lost over the past few years. He said we have some hope in Uzbekistan and Vietnam. These are areas which have been much tougher in the past but seem to show some improvement. He says we know the Egyptian government, even though Egypt is quite high on the list at number 20, the government itself would like to see an improvement of treatment of Christians and they're making the right moves. The issue 
there revolves around extremist and cultural differences where the culture itself has ingrained extremism in it. There's a lot going on in the list. And he, he lays out this two-front war he talks about on the expression of faith. Number one, it's tribal extremism, whether that be Hindu extremism in India or Islamic extremism in Somalia, Afghanistan, etc. And then on the other hand, you have governments, which is more of our concern today, governments that are centralizing control and using it against Christians, choking their freedoms. And that's the challenge. It's two different kinds of things happening on the list. So David Curry, president of Open Doors USA, that's the interview. And I thought it would make a nice lead-in today uh, also an instructive lead-in to kind of help us to think about the global church and to pray for the global church, but also a nice lead-in really to the theme of today's text, which is totalitarian government control over worship. And that's, that's, the, that's the main point of today's text, is, is idolatrous worship being thrust upon believers. And idolatry, I think, is any activity that supplants the worship of the one true God. Idolatry would be to divert that worship to something else or someone else. And so when we dive into this text and look at this text today, we need to remember, you may recall even in last week's sermon where we left off in Daniel 2.49, it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and David remained in the king's court. So we, we see from the pickup of last week that Daniel had interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar and after having prayed with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God had been, had been gracious to reveal not only the application, but the content of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is introduced to the one true God through the testimony of Daniel, through the interpretation of a dream. And Daniel, as a good friend, asks for a favor of the king for his friends. And so last week's sermon was on friendship, you may recall. And we left off with Daniel not ever forgetting his friends and requesting this, this appointment for his friends. To follow the story along, though, if you jump back to Daniel 1, in case you haven't been with us, you should probably know that Daniel and his three friends were carried off along with the best and brightest teenage Hebrew boys after Babylon defeated Judah. There were waves of deportation beginning in 605 B.C. and continuing on until the, the absolute destruction of the Jewish temple in 586 B.C., Overlooking that would be the book of Lamentations in the Bible. You might consider that book from that vantage point. It's a terrible, abysmal sight to see. But God brought judgment on unfaithful Judah through the instrument of Babylon. And in the course of time, Babylon would be punished for their sins as well. Where we are here is Babylon at the pinnacle of its power, of its military might, of its world dominance. And the most influential leader of Babylon, the most powerful man, was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And so that is a man that takes center stage in this particular story. If you look back at chapter 1, you see these boys were taken off, but there were a few of these teenagers that were faithful to the Lord. When it looked like absolute insurmountable odds, they remained faithful. There were certain things that they continued to do and certain things that they wouldn't do because of their faithfulness to the one true God. The king's initial interest in the one true God in Daniel chapter 2 apparently didn't fully take the language of chapter 2 with regard to the golden image in the dream resurfaces in chapter 3 in a, in a religiously idolatrous manner. Nebuchadnezzar is asserting his kingship over and above the God of his dream. And so Daniel 2.44 speaks of the God of heaven that will set up a never-to-be-destroyed kingdom which would be beyond Babylon. You might note back at Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So the message that he initially accepted with regard to the relief from his nightmares, apparently now he is not accepting. He's trying to, to contravene, to go against. And so Daniel 3 shows the worship of Nebuchadnezzar's idol, as a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar seeking to maintain unity and stability across time with the absence of God. And anti-Semitism is ripe. The Hebrews are targeted for what would be religious persecution here because those are the ones that would not actually worship an idol. And jealous officials knew that Daniel's friends wouldn't break the first commandment, and so they're able to isolate them, probably because of envy, and to go after them. But the plan actually backfired on them, as we'll see at the end, kind of like it backfired on Haman and Esther, with the gallows, because in the end, God vindicates his people, and this particular story does it in real life and not just after their death. 
And instead of dying, Daniel's friends are actually rescued in advance in the kingdom. So let, that's enough of an overview. Let's read it now, straightforwardly, Daniel 3, 1 to 30, and then we'll take it on its parts for the sermon. So the, the scripture says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had to set up. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, for they do not serve the gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every, other kind of, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And his expression, the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is, is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins 
For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. May God bless the reading of his word to minister grace unto the hearers. Let's take verses 1 through 15 to see the setting up of idolatrous worship. 1 to 15, the setup of idolatrous worship. And then verses 16 to 18, the takedown of idolatrous worship. And then verses 19 through 30, the rescue from all idolatrous worship. A forelooking point indeed. So first, let's see the setup of idolatrous worship before we see the takedown and the rescue from it all. So the setup of idolatrous worship. Some would assert that, and I think wrongly, that God has to rescue me on my command from my current predicament in the manner that I prescribe, or he's not worthy to be my God. This is the kind of fallacy that's set up by so many today in our culture and in our world. If God would just do this, then I would worship him. If he would just do that, then I would worship him. Daniel's faithful friends show us that this is not the right approach or attitude toward the one true God. God's ability to rescue me is not in question with them. He absolutely can. His ability is not in question. However, his will, circumstantially, to rescue me from my current predicament in this matter, in the manner in which I described, may or may not be so. He may or may not choose to rescue me from my current predicament in the manner in which I wish he would. Worshippers of the one true God do not hold God over the barrel of a proverbial gun. We understand our fallen human condition and his infinite magnitude, his greatness. We understand that because of that chasm that he has bridged in Christ, we understand, we're the ones that understand that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we know from the book that God has a revealed or a decreed will for us. And it's very clear, book, chapter, and verse for Daniel's three friends, that thou should have no other gods before them. They cannot bow down and worship a graven image. This is crystal clear. What's not clear to them is God's circumstantial will. Does he plan to rescue them from the fire? Or like so many saints of old, so many saints of old, read Hebrews 11, for example, like so many saints in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, is it his will in this situation for us to die as faithful martyrs for the cause? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrate faithfulness in saying in the moment, he's able to, I don't know if he will, Either way, blessed be the name of the Lord, in effect. What a wonderful testimony, for sure. Now, when we assert that God must rescue us in certain ways, we are not being faithful. But when we assert that God is able to rescue us in any way, we are being faithful. Within this first point, we get some overview information in the setting up of idolatrous worship. In the setting up of idolatrous worship. You may have noticed in the reading of the text how many times the words set up were mentioned. Set up were mentioned. Davis, Dale Davis in his commentary astutely pointed this out and, and showed it to me. He said that the verb set up appears nine times in 18 verses. In verse 1, 2, 3, twice in verse 3 actually. Verse 5, 7, 12, 14, and 18. To set up, to set up, to set up. And it's in reference to the image that the king had set up. And Davis hopes we will swipe the uses and see if it doesn't seem as kind of a cumulative mockery at work. The image is a setup job, as we say. The writer is telling you that, that it's no more divine than an artificial knee replacement. What he's saying here is this is set up, it's something that's been done. And what the verb set up appears when it appears nine times in this text is showing is a contrast with what I read earlier in Daniel 2, 44 where it says, and in those days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And so it's a contrast, we think, between the one true God that will set up the kingdom that will never be destroyed, which we talked about last week in the sermon, and now Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to circumvent that, to override that, to show and flex his muscles. And so this is an interesting stitch in time. Lord Acton famously 
wrote that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolute. And that was an underpinning thought toward our way of government in this country. Don Carson wrote this. He said, in the 19th century, Lord Acton wrote that all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The founding fathers of the American Republic would not have disagreed. That is one of the reasons why they constructed a government with checks and balances. They did not want any one branch to have too much power because they knew that sooner or later it would be corrupted. That is also a primary reason why they wanted constitutionally mandated democratic voting. It was not because they trusted the wisdom of people as a collective. They didn't. Their writings show that they were very nervous about giving too much power to popular vote as well. But they wanted a mechanism for voting people out of office, replacing them with others. That way, no one in power could unceasingly accumulate power. Sooner or later, the people could, could turn them out and without bloodshed. Now, that was at least the, the mindset for a civics lesson behind it. Whether or not it's been completely successful or will be completely successful is another conversation. The Constitution of the United States is not infallible. It's not the Word of God. But what was behind the making of the separation of powers was Lord Acton's, what he put into famous thought, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Jesus understood the nature of power in government hierarchy. We know this because of verses like Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. And he set out a different paradigm for us as followers of Christ. He said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. That's not a wimpy kind of servitude. I don't mean to advocate that, but it is a lowering of oneself, a self-denial for the sake of those in which you have influence with. Whoever wants to be first must be your servant, Matthew 20, 26, and 27. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't get the memo 600 years earlier. He sets up this idol that's so much taller than it is wide, it almost would have been a feat of architecture, even if it was simply gold-plated. This, this totalitarian isn't writing a new script, but he's certainly writing the script in a manner that's very flattering toward himself. The width of the idol, to put it into context, is one foot less than a basketball goal laying down flat. It's nine feet. So it's one foot less than a basketball goal. It's gold-plated, and it's, it's no Lady Liberty. The statue is meant to convey not freedom and opportunity, but absolute domain and, and tyranny of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. The height of it is nine basketball goals tall. So you go up nine basketball goals, you go one basketball goal laying flat. It's kind of the dimensions of this, this idol that they were all to, they're coming to this dedication ceremony. They need to just go along to get along to keep their lives. They need to worship this, this God representing gods, whatever the case may have been, of King Nebuchadnezzar. But mainly it was about King Nebuchadnezzar's, King Nebuchadnezzar's plight. Thinking biblically and theologically, think about Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. Some of you will be very familiar with this story from your Bible reading. If you're newer to the faith, perhaps it's newer to you. But Genesis 11, 1-9 is worth reading in light of the setting up of this gold-plated monster idol. Uh, Genesis 11, 1-9, in, in summary, was trying to bring unity godlessly. They didn't want God to have anything to do with it, but they tried to unify themselves without God and, and build a tower and get to heaven without any help from God. And so their God-denying was frustrated and the, lang- the people were dispersed, and languages were dispersed in perpetuity, and confusion of language set in. And we sort of have a, 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 a fixing of that spiritually at Pentecost when the languages are brought back together in Acts chapter 2. And we're able to understand through spiritual eyes in a common language the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Babylon has kind of always been an archetype. It's always been an example, a, a catchword, even in Revelation it is, for godless unity, the attempt to find a way to, to rule with an iron fist and get everybody involved in the same economy while denying God and worshiping idolatrously. And this kind of, this kind of, um, this kind of absolute power, this kind of, of absolute power is very threatened by anyone that will not get in line for the good of the order and say what needs to be said, and do what needs to be done. To put it differently, Christians are always viewed, and I hesitate to use the word always in a sermon, but it's true if you look at history. They're always viewed as mighty threats to mighty men. Because Christians would just as soon die as get in line and worship an idol. It's an absolute factoid we can't do that. 
And so, so, so what, what happens in situations like that is, on the one hand, this, it's this weird relationship. These, these Hebrew teenagers, now 20-somethings perhaps, they are, they are wonderful servants in that kingdom. They seek, as Jeremiah said, seek the welfare of Babylon while you're there for 70 years or whatever the case may be. Seek the welfare of the city. He knows he's got really good servants here. In fact, you can tell by the, the, the reading of the text that he's not against them until his pride gets in the way. He's actually giving them another chance. You know, Hey, why don't you just go ahead and do this? I really don't want to kill you. Go ahead and do your thing. And then it's when they respond in faith to the one true God that he gets furious, like over-the-top angry. And it says he turns against them in one verse there. So what's going on? Well, there's this weird tension. We've known, in the, in the Roman Empire, we've known this. There's this, this sense in which Christians make the best citizens because we, we have this, this kind of rudder, this anchor to the Lord. We're servant-minded. We understand the, the work ethic, that work isn't bad. We understand that God created work, that it's good. There's this, this care for fellow man. There's a lot of things that totalitarians like about Christians. But there's this other side of it where there comes a point where Christians simply cannot go along to get along, and particularly when they are commanded to do something that is exactly against the decreed will of God, such as, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Decreed will of God. Now I ask you to take inventory in this first point this morning. What is the decreed will of God for you? Perhaps think of the commandments, how might a totalitarian regime force you to compromise on a clear decreed command? And what might you need to do to be faithful in the moment of fire, in the moment of trial? I think there's this sense in which King Nebuchadnezzar is always kind of pulling for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even though he turns against them because he's a prideful man. I think you can see that in the text if you, if you glance down at it and look at it. Verses 1 to 15, though, to kind of round out this point, we have the setting up of idolatrous worship. He has set this idolatrous worship up. Absolute power has corrupt absolutely. It's clearly about worship. Eleven times the word worship is used in this text. Five more times the word serve is used, which kind of hammers home the point. What really matters here is not security, but worship. And it's an issue of worship. And when we look at this, we, we should probably note one more thing before we move on to our second point. These Chaldeans, are, they really don't like these believers. They don't like these Hebrew believers. They're maliciously accusing the Jews, it says in verse 8. So their motive is malice. And the author believes it's substantiated, Daniel 3. They were targeting Jews that would not have any other God before them. And these, these Orthodox Jews share in common with us as Christians that there's only one God, one true God, we won't worship any other. So these Chaldeans, in their jealousy, because probably the appointed position of Daniel's friends in the kingdom, they are, they are trying to evoke maximum rage in King Nebuchadnezzar. So they aren't being good servants. They aren't being good citizens in that kingdom. And they are playing to the pride of the self-deluded king to, to amp up his rage with all these decrees and decrees and decrees and dedications and back and forth. So the opportunistic accuse the Jewish three of paying no attention to what the king had said. But that's untrue. They paid a lot of attention to what the king had said. They simply weren't willing to violate the decreed will of God. And so that's, that kind of gives us into the flow of the first 15 verses. And now we look at our second point, verses 15 to 18. The takedown of idolatrous worship. The takedown of idolatrous worship. God had worked inside of these boys to protect and preserve them through almost impossible times. And these boys had a moment here where what they had really prepared for through consistent worship of God was put to the test. And I think for me, and I'm looking at these verses particularly in verse 15 and following, I think we need to understand that we're not ready for the moment in the moment. We're ready for our moments before the moment ever gets there. There is uh, these, these ordinary means of grace we have when we gather every Sunday. There's these ordinary things that God does in our lives to fortify us for those extraordinary moments whenever they come. And it may not be the exact kind of moment that these three had, but we certainly will have moments to be sure. 
And look at verse 15, perhaps, here. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I've made, well and good. But if you do not, look at this binary choice. You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? So he's kind of taunting this God that he's heard about before. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their nerves were steeled, but they had to be fortified, I think, long before this moment. They were fortified long before this moment, for this moment. And they said to the king, we don't need to answer you in this matter. Fascinating verse, really. It fasts me forward, really, in the biblical story to Jesus before Pilate. Remember, he's like a lamb, like a lamb is silent, the sheep before the shearers. He's, he's relatively silent. He's not completely silent. He, can't, he does eventually speak, kind of like these boys speak. But Jesus, actually before Pilate, he feels, he, I'm kind of interpreting a bit, but it seems as if he feels no need to speak. He, he knows what he's doing, he knows where he's going. Pilate's very unnerved by Jesus' unwillingness to babble on and talk and talk and talk. And, you know, I think there's something to that. We're not Babyloners. We don't babble on and on and on. When the moment comes, whatever that moment is, we let our words be few, we speak what must be said, and we take what comes. That's what it means to be Christian, I think. And so they, just, they said, we don't really have a reason to speak to you in this matter. In other words, it's as if to say, you already know where we stand. We're not bound before that gold-plated thing you got out there. Okay? So come what may. And, but but he, he presses on because... He wants to somehow jive these two worlds where he appreciates the citizenry of these Hebrew boys and at the same time, he has to dominate. He has to make it all about his godness and his pagan pantheon. And so this is where this thing is coming out to be. And it says in verse 16, we have no reason to answer you, but they go ahead and offer some commentary, verse 17 and following. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able. He's able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And it appears as if they're not going to worship it in perpetuity. Like, if God rescues me from the fiery furnace, we're not going to change our mind in a month. We're not going to change our mind in a year. This is a line for us. And I think we can't read texts like this without considering where our line should be. And I don't know the answer for each and every person. I've offered something similar to this in the first week of the sermon series in this, but I think Daniel commands us to consider, or calls us to consider these things, and to consider what, what, what is too far. And, and again, I'm going to argue that, the, that the, the revealed will of God, the decreed will of God, is where it's too far. But then you have to know the will of God enough to say, in situations, that's, too, that's actually calling me to deny the clear teaching of the will of God. I can give you a biblical example or two. Uh, one is in Exodus, when the Hebrew midwives are being called to commit infanticide against the, the birthing. The babies are coming out of the birth canal, and they're supposed to kill them, and they just don't do it. It's, they just don't do it. They just, they just disobey that. I think that's pretty clear. When it's an issue of life, right, don't you think? Civil disobedience makes perfect sense. I think in this case in Daniel, we've already seen, if they're calling you to worship uh, some other god, if they're, call, if they're calling you to bow the knee to Baal, Whatever Baal's form it takes in this society, we don't do that. We don't do that. Uh, you would have to probably take it on down the list and thinking about the commands, and maybe you wouldn't all draw the line at the exact same place. But draw the line we must. I think it was Chesterton I've said before that mora- said morality is like art and that exists in determining where you draw the line. I think Christianity, you have to draw the line somewhere. It has to be drawn somewhere. And so in this case, we will not bow to this, this behemoth, lopsided, idol that you have set forward. I was thinking about some contrasts in the takedown of this idolatrous worship. It came from the inside before it was ever visible outside. These guys just decided they're not going to do it. But verse three, chapter 3, verse 15 sets up a binary choice with no wiggle room. And it sets up a, a, a contrast with similarities and differences between the Lord King and Nebuchadnezzar King. I wrote a few of them. Here's the similarities. Both are kings. Both offer a binary choice to their subjects. Both have anger with rebellious subjects, and both have servants testify, declaring their case before them. Here's some differences between Nebuchadnezzar the king and the Lord king. Nebuchadnezzar the king claims illegitimate authority over the creator God and even taunts the one true God in verse 15. This king's trying to make earthly power reach heavenly when we pray exactly the opposite in the Lord's prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Secondly, we see the differences. Both have binary choices, but patience describes the Lord King in the Bible, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Time is our opportunity, therefore. The Lord King is no tyrant, but King Nebuchadnezzar is. He stands in a long line of tyrants. Obedience must be immediate. There is no patience. Verse 3, or the third thing, rather, of differences between them. Both kings are angry with subjects. One is righteously wrathful, for man has rebelled against the Lord King. Our king is totally righteous, just, and holy. He has every right to demand it, but he instead extends mercy and grace, a way out from underneath our sins in the face of the demand. Our Lord's angry disposition would be justified, yet he took wrath out on his prize so that we can be saved. King Nebuchadnezzar's anger is unrighteous. In fact, he's described and defined by it. Fury, rage. I wonder today if anger has crept into our manner of doing life. It creeps in subtly, doesn't it? Something doesn't go our way. We feel that we should have gotten a thing that we didn't get. And before you know it, anger. You see red. If you're angry this morning, I'd like to ask you, do you think that emotion best described Jesus' ministry? And if not, I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're angry, what's behind it? Anger has been described by folks that think about emotions as a secondary emotion, not primary. Anger is always covering for something. Can you use your anger locator and discover what lurks behind and beneath your anger? Would you have the courage to redress, and it would take courage, what is making you angry? You have a benefit of something that a man that's so powerful like King Nebuchadnezzar does not have if you're angry. You have people around you that have a lot more reasons to tell you the truth. Ephesians 4 exhorts us not to let too much time pass on our anger, but to address our anger. And there is such thing as righteous anger, but this isn't righteous anger, and that's not what we're talking about here. King Nebuchadnezzar's fury and rage was unfounded because his demands on his people was unfounded. And if you are uh, described best as an angry person, you should see some of us today. You should talk to one of us about it. We should pray about it. Pray for the angry, pastorally speaking. Just remember to pray for the angry if it's not you. Anger seems to be uh, an issue amongst Christians in our culture and it's, it's hard to determine exactly why and how we got there. I was mentioning before that excursion for application about anger, since it's such a prolific word in this text, I was mentioning the comparing and contrasting of these kings, and there was one more I wanted to make. Both kings have servants testify. One wants the salvation of his enemies, and the other wants the destruction of his enemies. One prays for enemies, even from a suffering cross, and the other schemes the demise of their enemies. One accepts ultimate authority, and is ultimate authority, and the other is jealous of it and won't bow before it. There's a contrast which produces a clarity between the Lord King and the Tyrant King, and you don't have to keep clapping the longest for our king to know that you serve him, like you know, North Korea or something, you know, or, or, or Stalinist Russia. You know, nobody could stop clapping. First one stopped clapping, it'd be killed because they didn't pay as much homage to the secretary as the next guy or what the case may be. But you need to get in the mindset of this to understand how it gets there, and you get in the mindset of this to understand the distinctions that are being made. The takedown of idolatrous worship begins in here before it ever happens out there. You have to have folks that are not beholden to totalitarians and are not beholden to anyone but the one true God. The Christian worldview has made away from tyranny where there seemed to be no way. God's been gracious. Suffering and sovereignty, they tend to go together, though. I'm reminded of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, the verse 4 that says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. I was listening to a sermon titled Happy Are the Humble by Bobby Jameson about a month ago. And he said the following about suffering and sovereignty going together for the believer. And listen to how he talked about it. He said, interestingly, that grace and suffering are a package deal. And he said he used a Christmas gift illustration. He said, Did you, have you ever received a gift for Christmas and the meaning of that gift was not immediately apparent? 
as to the benefit of the gift that was meant to bring. Like, say, somebody gives you a case of deodorant. He was preaching in Philippians 1 on a similar theme as we have here in Daniel 3, and he said he, said he talked about the gift of suffering in this manner. He said, it's been granted to you, Philippians 1.29 says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, as if it's some kind of a gift. And so how can it be that suffering for Christ's sake is a gift or a present given by God? Well, for one thing, Paul is not saying that suffering is intrinsically good. He's not denying the pain and the loss associated with suffering. But consider it's a gift to be treated for Christ's sake the way he was treated for yours. Like Acts 5.41 that says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's a gift to show the world that Christ is worth more than anything in the world. How do you do that? By holding on to Christ at the cost of anything the world can take, including your life. As Daniel's three friends confessed in Daniel 3.17 and 18, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve and worship the golden image that you've set up. It's a gift to enter the furnace of affliction and discover not just that Christ went there before you, but that he is there with you now. The discovery in Daniel 3, 24 and 25 is profound, and it thrusts us into our third and final point today. How we get rescued ultimately from idolatrous worship. Here again, Daniel 3, 24 and 25, to frame this third and final point. We've seen the setup of idolatrous worship, the takedown of it, and I mean that internally before it's externally. But now we see the ultimate rescue from all idolatrous worship. Daniel 3, 24 and 25 says, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four. I see four in the fire. And you notice that they're unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son, like the sons of the gods. How is suffering for Christ's sake a gift? It's a gift to lose a little now in the promise of gaining far more by that very loss. Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, and they, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like this. So, now there's another question, and I really appreciate Jameson bringing it out. I think it really nails down this thought process within this sermon. So, hang with it. He brought this out, and I really appreciate it. He said, Our texts, like the ones we're reading and thinking about and meditating on, saying that all Christians will be persecuted for their faith. As you might not feel persecuted like that. And he said, Yes. And he said, and I think this is profound. If that seems unbelievable to you, you might be defining persecution too narrowly and not broadly enough. You know, we led with the, with the martyrs and we talked about from the open doors from the start here. But, but let's bring it closer to home. Maybe you're defining persecution too narrowly. We've tried to drag in the net a little bit as we've talked about where you draw the line and social ostracization and so, what, so forth. But here, something he says is helpful. Persecution for Christ's sake is far broader than state-sponsored infliction of physical harm. Suffering for Christ's sake runs the full spectrum from martyrdom to being mocked. It includes being insulted or bullied for your faith. It includes having family members freeze you out, refuse to talk to you, or even disown you. That hits a little closer to home now, doesn't it? Jameson helpfully says, and I say to you, if you're not a Christian... We're glad you're here, and you're welcome to all of our public services. And I would be happy to talk with you after church about any of these themes. But you might think that all this talk of opposition sounds overblown, like we're making it up or bringing it upon ourselves as Christians. But I think the more exposed that you become to history and the more aware you are of the global status of global Christians around the world, the less surprised you'd be and the more objectively verified you'd find this assertion both in the past and in the present. But why? Why are Christians disliked? We may have touched on it earlier because of their capacities in the kingdom, but also their loyalties to a higher kingdom, a higher king and a greater kingdom. But why do we face this dislike really? 
John talks about it in chapter 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Or John 15, 18 and 19 to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. So if you're an unbeliever this morning, what's your honest, impolite reaction to what you like and do not like about Christians? What do you think is harmful to humanity? What do you think is crazy, absurd, sensible? Jesus was announcing in advance the way he and his followers would be disliked. What competing love is at bottom that makes Jesus so hated? And I would say to you this morning, if you'll entertain those questions, you're well on your way in my mind to beginning to see the one true God for who He is and how He loves us. He loves us so much that He's willing to get that anger out of us, that He's willing to give us a path forward through His salvation. He's willing to help us to meditate not just on ourselves, but on the beauty of a greater purpose. This is a trust cultivated before the fire comes on days like today. It's an assurance right? that's made right with us before the fire comes on days like today. And we invite you into it. The gospel of Christ is very simply that you are a sinner, that you deserve the right, the right wrath of God against you for your sin, but that he sent his son to take on the penalty for your sins, that through receiving of his gospel, of his grace, you might have eternal life. And so John says something like, if you receive him, you all have the right to become his children. But there, there's another side to this. It's not automatic salvation just because you exist in a certain society where there appears to be other Christians. It's not automatic salvation because you've gathered sometimes and not been hostile directly to other sincere Christians. You must receive this gospel. It is entirely possible to not hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, but, but instead to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And these are of people, Matthew 7 describes, of people that have been among the true Christians, among the church. It's, it's a strident truth from Matthew. And what I would say to you this morning is you know if you're just kind of dancing around with this thing, but you don't really want it. And I'm telling you this morning, God's wrath will be far more fiery, far more permanent than anything that King Nebuchadnezzar could cook up to the seventh power. The completion of God's wrath against you, turned fully against you on the day of the Lord, is something that I don't want anyone in my hearing to see. But you will see it if you don't take Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must take Christ as your Savior. He is not a tyrant. He's patient. But his patience run out when you breathe your last breath or he returns. And he will judge the quick and the dead. You will face judgment. There will be no more dancing around with it. You come into it. It's joy. You say, well, how can any of us be saved, Pastor? How can you be saved? We wouldn't be if it wasn't for the grace of God. I mean, the miracle of saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a burning furnace pales in comparison to the miracle of waking up Matt Watson's cold, dead heart to the gospel. I mean, that sucker's dead as a hammer, and God saved my soul. So I don't stand before you as some kind of a, of a, of a pride-filled human being that's got it all figured out. I'm saying to you, like Spurgeon said, one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread, surrender your life to Christ. Give it to Him. It's a miracle every single time. We'll celebrate it like we were delivered from a fiery furnace because it's what you were. You were delivered from hell the moment the inception of salvation takes root in your heart. Receive the gospel. What an evangelistic sermon we have an opportunity to tell because of this text. The ultimate rescue from idolatrous worship. It'll move you into the place where you don't command from God, you make requests. Where you don't command God, be at your beck and call, but you follow His commands. Where you don't command anything to God, but you serve Him of a willing heart because he's already done so much for you. Well, your worship could never be misdirected or redirected to anyone but God himself because of his great salvation. Finally, we find in Daniel 2 at the end, or Daniel 3 rather, at the end, we find uh, these 
guys walking in the fire. It's interesting, really. Walking throughout Scripture is a metaphor for your relationship with the Lord. You think of your walk with the Lord, right? We talk about that. So they're walking with the Lord King. And we look at this text today, and we can ask ourselves, how, how is our walk going? In the midst of our difficult times, in the midst of our furnace-like experiences at the expense of possibly too much allegorization here, let me just simply say, ask a question opposed to you, how's your walk with Christ in the midst of what you're in? He, the Bible promises that He will never leave you nor forsake you. That he's always with you. So He's not gone. As your Savior, He's there with you. And whatever you're in today, He's walking with you, cares for you. Even if God's circumstantial will is to let you go into that fire. You know, we often talk about these three as if well, God just delivered them from the fire. I mean, I, He could have delivered them from never going into the fire. I mean, the circumstances didn't have to be at which point they were even faced with the binary choice of whether or not they would work. You see, if you're going to blame God, you can blame Him all the way back. If you just keep tracking all those contingencies of the, in the back and back, I guess you can, you can blame Him for the fall. Is that really where you want to go? At our core, we are either pride-filled because we blame God or we're humbled because we realize it's our fault. And I just tell you, as Christians, we don't have anything that you don't have except for one thing. We know it's our fault. We know it's our fault, and we've said it's our fault, and we say every Sunday it's our fault, and we keep saying it's our fault because we know that we don't deserve this great salvation that he's made for us. King Nebuchadnezzar was self-deluded, and yet he got to see and hear the gospel because of the faithfulness of God's people in the midst of the fire. He said, come up and come out and come to me. Look at the very last verses of this text one more time before we close. Daniel chapter 3. And look at verses 27 and following. Right in the middle of the verse. The fire had not any power over their bodies of those men. The hair on their heads were not singed. Their clothes were not harmed. The counselors had to admit they didn't even smell like fire. If you've ever been around a wood-burning stove, you know everything smells like fire in the house. I grew up with one. Everything smells, they didn't even smell like... I'm picturing these counselors like, you know, doing their duty before this king. <laughs> no, I don't even smell fire on them, boss. I don't even smell fire. I mean, this is... God preserved them perfectly. There's no... Even a smell of fire. And Nebuchadnezzar, asked, and Nebuchadnezzar answered, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any guy except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree, another decree. And a people, nation, or language, you start to think about the, the gospel of calling in all the nations that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They'll be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So he answers his question that he posed back in verse 15, that they posed, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands, Nebuchadnezzar said. So the question was posed to them, and then it's answered in verse 29. There's no God who is able to rescue in this way. And that's where we get our third and final point in this message, that the idolatrous worship is set up, it's torn down, but we're rescued forever and ever from it because this God is able to rescue us in this way. And then those three were promoted again to face yet more danger in the days and years to come. Let's bow our heads together and pray. God, salvation is a great rescue operation.